We're going to get back into our spiritual warfare. If you would turn to Ephesians 6, please. Starting in verse 10. And Paul writes there, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God, that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. Wherefore, he says, take unto you the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. And he says, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth, and having on the breastplate of righteousness, and your feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. And above all, he says, taking the shield of faith, wherewith you shall be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, and watching thereunto with all perseverance and supplication for all saints. And let's pray. And Father, we ask that you'll take this word and just have it minister to our hearts, have it speak to each and every person here today to meet a need they have that will help them in this upcoming week and in their walk with you. And I just ask that you'll open the understanding of our minds and our hearts and our spirits to the truth of your word. And, and I just ask for your presence to be here, to have that word make an impression on our hearts in that way. And we thank you for doing that for us, Lord, ahead of time. In Jesus' name. We've been, for the last several weeks now, talking about spiritual warfare and its importance. And in case you haven't noticed in the world, we're kind of living in a time of unprecedented wickedness and spiritual evil in this world. So there's totally unrestrained sexual activity. And I mean that literally going on in the world. Anything you can think of now is going on. And there's worldwide terrorism, and occult and demonic practices are increasing and becoming accepted and normal. One indicator of that is the almost universal acceptance of these Harry Potter books. A seminary that I know about, I took a course there, won't say what it is, but it was called Great Books. So the guy that taught it when I was there, they were pretty much just classic books. Well, they have a new person in, and part of the great books they read are Harry Potter books. Now, that's bad. So I'm saying there's a lot of conservative evangelicals in this world today have no problem with Harry Potter. And I've never read the books. I've read excerpts from them on a news site, and that is about as demonic as you can get. And why anyone in their right mind, Christian or non-Christian, would have their children reading that and glad that they're at least reading is beyond me. It really is. But that's just a sign of the times we're in. So the devil is alive and well, like I said, in case you haven't noticed on planet Earth. And he seems to be gaining momentum with his schemes and his plans. And what's happening also is we're seeing it more and more in this supposed Christian country of ours that he is affecting the world view of Americans on biblical Christianity. And so the world, and American in particular, is getting further and further away from accepting the fact that God and the Bible are the standards we measure things by. So there was a time when a person was a sinner and not doing what's right. They at least knew they weren't doing what's right. But today, we are living is in the book of Judges, and this is the truth banner that our world, our country, is putting over itself right now. And that is, every man does that which is right in his own eyes. Now, when God wrote that in the book of Judges, that wasn't a compliment. But today, that is a badge that is worn proudly by people, the majority, I would say, I think I could safely say that, of Americans. Every man is allowed to do that which is right in his own eyes. And they consider that progress not a rebuke. That's what we're going to talk about today. So we know from our text in verse 12, right? 
that the devil and his forces, they are an organized kingdom because he says there's principalities, powers, rulers of the darkness of this world, spiritual forces that are dominating and influencing and controlling the actions, minds, and hearts of the people. And how do they do that? How do these spirits, how does this organization work? It works through the world and its systems and its ways, through the news media. Spirits are influencing how news is presented through entertainment. What is now accepted television shows that have homosexuals on there being involved in what's going on. And it's all about, I felt so good because these other people accepted me. So it's all about accepting things and tolerating things that shouldn't be tolerated. So there's a difference, do we understand? There's a difference between hating somebody, being against them, wishing evil on them, and tolerating in the sense of accepting, saying what they're doing is okay when it is not okay. But that's how the devil works. The news, media, entertainment, music, He's working through sports, school systems, and governments. Those are the tools that he works through. And we talked before in 1 John 5, 19, it says in that verse that all of the world lies in wickedness. And it really is saying lies in the bosom of the wicked one. He's got them in his bosom, and they're resting comfortably. But for us, against all this, God has not left us defenseless, has he? As the captain of our salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, if we will put on the weapons he's given us, has well equipped us to deal with these spiritual forces that are in the world in this monumental battle that we're involved in. And last week, we saw that what happened at the cross. We saw that it says in Colossians 2 that the Lord Jesus Christ publicly humiliated and stripped Satan and all demonic forces of their armor as far as the Christian is concerned, right? And you say, well, man, he doesn't look like he's stripped. I mean, look what's going on in Shelby County. We got this heroin problem. He doesn't seem very stripped as far as that goes. And we see all this violence that's taking place, sickness and disasters in the world. He sure doesn't seem like a stripped foe, does he? But look, he is still the God of this world. There will come a time when the Lord Jesus Christ will rule and reign solely as the king of this earth in the millennium. And at that time, it's all going to be under his feet until Satan's released for a brief time. And then it will all be cast into the lake of fire, all these evil spirits, never to bother anyone again. That's what will happen. But for now, he's still the God of this world. He rules this world. His spirits have their way in a lot of ways in this world, don't they? But not for us. It doesn't have to be that way for us. But, listen, we have a responsibility, do we not? So our victory, while it's guaranteed, is not automatic. It's not automatic. So we're in, we just read it, we're in a life and death struggle, a wrestling match, a war. And it's violent. Does it not say in the Bible that the kingdom of heaven suffers violent and the violent will have to take it by force? What's that saying? We've got a war still. We're living in this world against these principalities and spiritual forces. And it's an intense war at times, isn't it? So what are we supposed to do about that? We just read two things. And I know I'm saying things I've said before, but you know what? I'm, it's on purpose. And I'll tell you why. Because you hear it once, it's easy to forget it. But you got some guy standing up there, keep saying the same things about, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might, and maybe we'll start thinking along those lines. Right? Start getting our thinking straight out. <laughs> because as spirit-filled Christians, that's what he says we can do. We can be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Spirit-filled Christians is what we are. What is that saying? That the God of the universe lives inside of us in the person of the Holy Spirit. We have more power in us than all the demonic forces combined. Infinitely more power. We have to believe that. We're not subject unto them in that sense. And how, though, do we have access to this power? 
Is it just a one-time experience when you came and asked someone to pray for you? Maybe it was Brother Hamilton to receive the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and you said a few words, and that's kind of been the end of it? No, it's, that's not how we have access to that power. Paul says in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit. It's a continuous filling that needs to take place, and that has to happen through prayer and then being in the Word and our faith. Amen? It's just not automatic. It's not a one-time experience. So he says, this is how we battle these spirits of darkness. First of all, we're strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. And secondly, he said, we are to put on the whole armor of God. And it's not insignificant that he says the whole armor. Because you can't just put on four of the seven pieces of armor and think you're going to be okay. Because how many times have we seen people, they like the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God and the shield of faith. And so they're confessing the promises, saying what's there, having that shield of faith. But they don't have on a breastplate of righteousness. And they've left their heart exposed. Main critical thing, right? And the devil throws his spear, and there they are, a battlefield casualty, bleeding to death while they're confessing the promises and holding on to their shield of faith. So we can't leave any of it off. Paul says, not Hamilton, but he would say it, you've got to put on the whole armor of God. Amen. That is very significant. Got to have the full armor. And so the full armor, we see the purpose of that in verse 13. Wherefore, he says, take unto you the whole armor of God for the second time. And the purpose is that we may be able to withstand in that evil day. So what is that evil day? So there's different opinions on that if you read commentators. So some will say the evil day is that day of evil that every Christian faces at times. And others will say, no, it's talking about the day of the Lord, that evil day. And others will say what Paul just had said in Ephesians 5:16, that the days are evil. And I'm saying I agree with all three of them because we are living in evil days, aren't we? And we need this armor. And everybody in here is going to have times in their life when they are really being attacked. Has anyone in here not been attacked at times harder than others? <laughs> so there is an evil day that we need to be able to stand. And also... That day of the Lord is coming. It is going to be a great and terrible day. And look, that day is approaching. And what did our Lord Jesus say? That as that day is approaching, it's going to be like birth pains. So it's going to come on this whole world. But it's going to be getting increasingly harder and harder. And the devil's going to be fighting on harder and harder. So these demonic forces, and this, it's already happening, is it not? The pressures from this. The amount of spiritual darkness that's coming in this world is going to increase and increase and it will be fully manifested in all its demonic glory during the tribulation when the Antichrist takes the throne. But it already says there are many Antichrists already here. The spirit is already here of the Antichrist. So it's a command. It's not an option for Christians. Now we can make it optional, but to our detriment, so the command is, put on the whole armor of God. And the reason Paul says, if you look at verse 13, is so that there's a purpose to it. That we, ye, may be able to withstand. I mean, you've got to be braced and have your armor fully on because there's an attack coming your way. You have to be able to withstand it in that evil day. And then he goes on to say, and having done all, to stand. And so what does he mean there by having done all? You ever ask yourself stuff like that? Just like, it's very easy to read over stuff. But that word having done all means to have accomplished, to achieve something. So he's saying, after you've achieved the task of putting on that full armor, after you've done that, preparing for battle, and walking in the spirit, he's saying, then get ready for the onslaught. Stand, because it's coming. 
but you've got to do all, having done all. So it's a picture of a soldier getting ready for battle, carefully putting on each piece of armor and making sure he's got it on and he's ready to use it and he knows how to use it and it's functioning properly. And after he's done that, he's waiting for the enemy on the battlefield. He's coming, but I'm ready for him. And so what if you haven't done all? What if you're still going out on that battlefield and you haven't tied your shoelaces? Your sandals aren't fastened. Or what if you left the sword back in the locker? What's going to happen when you try to take that stand on that battlefield? You're going to be in trouble. And that's why he says, after having done all, you've got to do that first. You've got to put it all on first and then go out and face your enemy. Otherwise, you're in danger. Because God, like animals, he supplies them the defensive weapons they need to survive. And if they choose not to use them, they'll die. But animals, they use what God's given them. And he's given us defensive weapons, this armor, and we've got to use it all. That's why he's given it to us. That's why he commands us, and we are the ones that are responsible to put it on. He's not going to put it on for us. So beginning in verse 14, he tells us what we should have put on as we stand to fight. Beginning in verse 14. And what he's given us here, they are the means by which we stand. This is how we stand. These are the weapons that enable us to stand. In verse 14, we're going to look today at this first piece. He says, stand therefore, having your loins girt about with truth. The belt of truth. And I will say, before I move on with this, that I think the order that he gives these weapons is important and intentional. I think the belt of truth is first for a reason. It's got to begin here. And I'll explain that as we move on. Because if you don't have this belt securely in place and functioning like it's supposed to, nothing else is going to work for you. The rest of the armor is not going to work. So a lot of commentators, if you read them, don't like to make a big thing about what well, Paul here is talking about the armor that a Roman soldier wore. If you really start reading your Bible and looking in even in those little side notes, you'll see there's constantly references to Old Testament verses. So Paul's mind, he's thinking Old Testament. And that's why it's good to read and know your Old Testament and be grounded in what it says. But everything, all this armor that's listed here is imagery that is coming from the prophet Isaiah. So the Romans weren't the first ones to decide to start wearing armor to battle. Everything he's listed here in Ephesians 6 is armor you can find in Isaiah. The belt, the breastplate, the shield, the sword, and so on. So Jewish soldiers and Roman soldiers had things in common. Just soldiers back then just had things that they wore, okay? Because there's things Paul doesn't use here that a Roman soldier would have worn. So the point here that I'm trying to make and maybe belabor it a bit much is it's not so much the armor and trying to figure out it and the old Roman soldier and da-da-da-da-da as the metaphors that it stands for, the spiritual application that's made through this armor. That's what's important. So the belt of truth in Isaiah 11.5. Isaiah 11 is a messianic prophecy. 11.2 is the one they always quote at Christmas time. Government is on his shoulders. Spirit of wisdom, da-da-da-da-da. Right? That's how it starts off. But down in 11.5, it speaks of truth or faithfulness being the belt that was around the coming Messiah's waist as he comes to do war. And here's what it would say. This is Isaiah 11.5. He shall smite the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips shall he slay the wicked. Also righteousness will be the belt around his loins, and faithfulness or truth the belt about his waist. So I would say Paul is an Old Testament guy. 
And I would say this battle armor imagery is more taken from, more likely taken from the Old Testament. But that's not to say that people wouldn't have seen Roman soldiers with this armor on too. So the belt they wore was generally a leather belt. And for a Roman soldier, they had these leather thongs hanging down that protected their thighs. But the main purpose of this leather belt, one main purpose was to hold a tunic. So these people had these big tunics they wore with the hole cut in it for your head and draped down, long draping things. And so if they tried to do battle with that thing hanging down and on the ground, they'd be tripping, they'd be stumbling all over it, it'd be getting in their way as they tried to get their weapons out. So what a soldier would do, first thing, is he would take his tunic and carefully tuck it into his belt and secure it. And that way he felt secure. He felt like he was ready to go out and battle. It gave him confidence. In other words, he was prepared. I just saw somebody the other day, a very skinny person, and they had pants on and they had a belt. Well, that belt was nothing more than an ornament because it, it was hanging down. It wasn't holding anything up. <laughs> now me, I've always worn my belt, not as an ornament but to keep my pants up and to keep my shirt tucked in, both. So when I worked, I'd have stuff in my pockets and I, I did not like that feeling if for whatever reason I didn't have a belt on, if I was power washing, I was getting wet and I didn't want to get my belt wet. I couldn't stand that since my pants wanting to fall down and, or if I, my shirt came untucked and I can't get the, to my pockets. I just felt unorganized, unprepared. And so I'd like to get my shirt tucked in well and my belt tightened up. A little tighter now than it used to be when I was working a lot. But I was ready to work then. And that's, the, that's what we're getting here. That tunic tucked in for that soldier. He's ready to go to war. And you know, if you've heard that expression, tighten your belt, get ready to work, be prepared. And that's the way our Lord Jesus spoke. In Luke 12, 35, he said this. He said, let your waist be girded and your lights burning. And what was he talking about there? He's saying, you all need to be ready for when I come back. Be prepared. Have your loins girded. And in 1 Peter 1, 13, he says this. So here's where I'm saying you can't get too hung up on that the belt goes along the waist and what's about your waist is divided, da, da, da. okay? Because here's how Peter used that expression. He says, therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Now, probably today in our generation, people wear belts around their head, I would guess. It's probably fashionable. But generally, I never did. <laughs> uh, Peter is saying, gird up the loins of your mind. Be sober and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And he's telling them, tighten up your belts. Like I said, he doesn't say around your waist. He says, tighten up that belt around your mind. And why is that? Because that is where truth and the battlefield is and over. It's about your mind. So in Ephesians 6.14, Paul is saying that having your loins girt about with truth is foundational in putting on the armor and being prepared to stand in the evil day. And I would say, why? Why would he put that first? Why not faith? Doesn't it say without faith it's impossible to please God? So why wouldn't he have faith first? Or why not salvation I mean, if you're not saved, you're nothing, right? The helmet. Why doesn't he have that first? So I think we have to have an understanding of what does he mean by truth? What does he mean by truth? Some people will say that truth means being truthful, honest, sincere, a person of integrity. And Paul had even earlier said in this epistle, speak every man truth with his neighbor. But I don't think that's what he means here by truth. 
I don't think he's saying use your honesty, your truthfulness, your integrity as a weapon against the devil. I don't think that's what he means. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have integrity, truthfulness, and honesty, okay? But I don't think that's what he's talking about here. But I think when he's talking about truth here, he's talking about the Word of God as a whole. So some people will say, well, it couldn't be truth, couldn't mean, Paul couldn't mean the Word of God. And they say the reason is, is he talks about the Word of God as being the sword of the Spirit. But what's happening? I think they're confusing the Word of God as a whole, as truth, as something that can be trusted, and its members in particular, scriptures in particular, is the sword of the Spirit. Because when Jesus is out in the wilderness being tempted of the devil, what did he do? He used the sword of the Spirit. But what did he do? He took that Word as it applied to each temptation and used it as the sword. But Paul here is talking about truth in a general sense of all the teachings of the Bible, all of the Word, all of the Word of God. So by believing the truth of the whole, you have faith to use the sword in particular. Because we're going to see right now, the churches and the world have no faith in the Word as the whole, as being the truth. And I think it's sometimes a problem with us in ways I'm not necessarily going to get into right now. But I think if we'll look at a few verses, if you don't mind, it'd become more clear. So if you would turn to John 8. So we're saying, what does Paul mean by truth? In verses 30 to 32. These are familiar verses. And as he spake these words, Jesus, it says, many believed on him. And then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, he says, if you continue in my word, then are you my disciples indeed, and you shall know what? The truth, and the truth shall make you free. So he says there, if you continue in my word, now, by that, does he just mean the first three verses of the Sermon on the Mount? That just a word or a few words? Or does he mean when he said to Peter to come on the water, come? That was a word. Does he mean just a word like that? But I think by word here, what does he mean? The whole of his teaching. That's what he means by his word. He's saying that to continue in his word all of what he taught by hearing it, by understanding it, by loving it, and obeying it. All of those things have to be. That's what's meant by continue. He says, if you do that, what does he say? You will know truth, the truth. And that truth will do what? Make you free from who? The devil and sin. He's the author of sin. That's what he's saying. So truth is equated here with all of Jesus' words, his teachings, all of what he said. So he's telling his disciples, if you'll continue on my word, listen to it, do what it says, you'll be putting on that belt of truth. And that's how you can defeat the enemy. You've got to have that on first. If you turn and look over in John 17, beginning in verse 14, and Jesus, this is his high priestly prayer. And he says, praying to the Father, I have given them thy word. And the world has hated them because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And he says, I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but that, that you should keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. And look what he says, sanctify them through thy truth. And he adds, thy word is truth. So when he says in verse 14, he says, I have given them thy word. What does he mean? Again, he's talking about all of the teaching that he gave them. He said, I only speak those things that the Father gives me to speak. So when he gave his word, it was everything he said, all his teachings, all his commandments. 
all his instruction, everything. That is what the word is, and that is what truth is. And that truth, verse 17, is telling us is what will sanctify us. That's what will make us holy. So he's saying that by hearing all of Jesus' teachings, the word of God, you are receiving truth, the truth. And that truth we have to wear as a belt around our body, tight. It's part of us. And as we do that, we become sanctified, holy, set apart by hearing, as I keep saying, obeying, loving that truth, seeing it as being the only authority, the only way to live our lives. And a true Christian, that's why they are a true Christian, because they see this Bible as being the revelation from God on how to live our lives, period. And I'm telling you, everybody's getting away from that too much. And other things are creeping in. The truth is no longer becoming the standard. Believe me, <laughs> that's what I'm pleading about. We've got to get back to where this is our standard for how we go about living. If we turn it back to Ephesians, Ephesians 4, I'm still trying to belabor the point that truth is the word as a whole. And look here in Ephesians 4, we looked at this back when we taught on our new identity in Christ. But in Ephesians 4, verses 20 to 21, Paul says, you're not to be like the world anymore. He says, you have not so learned Christ to live in uncleanness and greediness and lasciviousness. He says, verse 21, if so be that you have heard him, his words, and have been taught by him. And look what he says there at the end, as the truth is in Jesus. And what's he saying there? That truth is embodied in a person. As the truth is in Jesus. The Lord Jesus Christ is truth incarnate. Truth in the flesh. In John 1.14 it says, And the Word. Jesus is called the Word. The Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. And it says that Word that was made flesh was full of grace and truth. John 14, 6, we know this one. Jesus says, I am the way. And he says, I am the truth and the life. So he's called the word. He's also called the truth. They are synonymous. And all of the Bible, according to 1 Peter 1, 11, is inspired, it says, the prophets wrote, as they were moved by the Spirit of Christ. God is one. All of this is the Word of God. All of this is truth. And all of it is embodied in the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. So listen, this belt and this truth, it's the objective truth outside of us, and subjectively we put it on. So the belt is hearing believing, loving, and obeying the truth. That is how we put this belt on. That's what this belt is all about. And so, why is that such a big deal? Because that is where the battle is raging today, maybe more than you realize. Because we're living in a world and in a culture that does not believe there is absolute objective truth and everything in our culture is designed to demean to undermine to mock and humiliate Christianity and belief in the Bible I'm telling you it is and so what are we painted as intolerant bigots the Bible truth there is great pressure coming on all of us to compromise. It's already happening. It's already happening. It's a spirit. 
that is at work. We're talking about spiritual warfare. There is a spirit is at work in this world. The spirit of Antichrist is already at work. That's what it says in 1 John. So you have to know that the reason it has not been this bad before is because God has mercifully and graciously had his restraining hand on this world, on our country, not allowing evil to just run rampant, but it's being slowly and slowly and slowly his hands being lifted and the devil is rushing in to fill that void. God's in control. But he's lifting his hand. It's a form of judgment that's taken place. And so this spirit that undermines the word, the integrity of the word, it's creeping into the church. It's teaching, it's music, it's worship. And it bothers me when you've got people not here, but I know for a fact people that are totally unregenerate, but they're musical, and they go to churches that are glad to have them on stage, part of their worship team. And one person I know, he's bragging to me about how much he likes church now, because he gets to get up there and jam, is basically what's going on. Now see, there's something wrong with that. And so when you start setting aside the standards of the Bible, and start going with the standards of the world, guess what that does? You don't think there's a spirit involved in someone leading worship that's unregenerate? If you don't think music is spiritual, you don't know anything about music. That's right. That's right. <laughs> I mean, in the Old Testament, it said they prophesied on their instruments. When God's anointing came on them. Saying, <laughs> so why is truth in this belt of truth a big deal? Because America today, and this is really bad in college campuses, really bad, is dominated by a spirit of relativism. And relativism says there is no absolute truth. Because there is no God to give absolute truth. And even if there is a God, there's no way we can know who he is, what he's like, what he demands. No way of knowing that. So what's good for you is good for you. But don't try to put that on me. That's what we got going on in our country now. Truth is relative. It's good for you, but it's not good for me. And what's good for me may not be good for you. But man, it's, let's just all be cool about it and tolerate each other and stay out of each other's way. So it's what's called a postmodern world. And that's just without getting into all that and boring you all, it just... Postmodernism says truth cannot be found. It can't be discovered. And it's permeating our whole society. The truth cannot be discovered. So truth is relative, they'll say, and it depends on your culture, what is truth to you, your background, your relationships, your outcomes. So, for instance, Eskimos can sleep with each other's wives, and that's just part of their culture. That's truth for them. And who are we to sit in judgment on that? Is what they would say. No absolute good or evil. And so they would say about us that you are an immoral, this is what the majority of Americans would think now, an immoral and arrogant person to say that it was wrong for Bruce Jenner to become Caitlyn Jenner. Now that's the truth. Nobody in the media was going to criticize that. They want to say how great it is that he's just willing to come out and be open about it. Please. And what's funny is most people aren't homosexual. Most people don't want sex changes in America. Most people are normal heterosexuals. But yet, they'll say they think that's great because that spirit's come into them and taken over. They wouldn't have thought that 20, 30 years ago. No way. But this spirit, I'm saying, is taken over. So this odd thing is you can't place your standards on me because there are no standards. That's the way the world's thinking now. I didn't grow up thinking like that. But that's this generation we're in. It's just what works. And so what's funny is, though, they'll want to say there's no moral absolutes, that there's no right or wrong, and they'll say that. 
until they get punched in the nose. And then all of a sudden, they're going to say, that wasn't right what he did to me. That was absolutely wrong. And they'll take him to the judge. You got to throw that guy in prison. He broke my nose. That wasn't right. And the judge says, well, it felt right to him. He's free to go. And you'd be like, man, that's a bad judge. Well, why not? Right? If truth is relative and what's good for you may not be good for me. But that's where we're at, right? They're really contradictory. So if you turn to Romans 1.18, so we're still talking about truth. Romans 1.18, it says this. It says, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who do what? Who hold the truth in unrighteousness. And do you know, the King James is just not a great translation there. It would have made sense to King James, but it doesn't make a lot of sense to us to hold the truth in unrighteousness. We get the impression it means to hold on to something. But the Greek word there means to suppress it, to push it down, to hold it down, to push it away from you. I've never seen the movie, but there's some movie where the guy says, you can't handle the truth, whatever that is. Okay, I've heard the expression. Well, that's the, what God's saying here. They hold, suppress the truth because of their unrighteousness. And he goes on to say, wrath is kindled against them. And the reason is, and he goes on to say, is because they can look at creation. It's right before them. It's plain to them, he says, that they can see there is a God, a creator, who is powerful. He's given them a conscience. They know this right and wrong. And they say, no, 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 we're going to suppress that truth. Push it aside. Hold it down. What we know, we're not going to glorify him, thank him, or submit to him. And so it goes on to say in verse 22, these people, it's all of us in the world, before we were saved, professing themselves to be wise, they became what? Fools. And God says, here's the thing we need to see. The world, because they are suppressing truth, they don't want to know it. They're pushing it down, pushing God out of their way, out of their lives, not thankful for what he's given them. You know what he says he does? You don't want to know me? Three times he says he gave them up. Verse 24. It says in 23, they changed the glory of God into an image made like man or birds or beast. And so in verse 24, it says God gave them up uncleanness what uncleanness is he talking about homosexual and lesbian lifestyles that's why those people are that way and look in verse 26 for this cause God gave them up because they suppressed truth gave them up to what it says vile affections and he goes on to say because they want to deny him and his absolute truth, he gave them over to a reprobate mind in verse 28. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. A reprobate mind means a depraved mind. And to do those things that are not convenient means things that are not proper things that are not right to do. And then he goes on to list the lifestyle of America. And look what he says. Being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers, backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affections, implacable, unmerciful. And look, verse 32, who knowing the judgment of God, that they which commit such things are worthy of death, they not only do them, but they have pleasure in those that do them. And the Greek for that is saying they give approval to those that practice them. They agree with them. They sympathize 
with them. And I'm saying that is our culture, a culture that has turned its back on God, his revelation, and truth. So to say, we're not going to tell you what you do is wrong. We're going to approve of it, sympathize with what you're doing, because you can choose what's right for you. That's right for you. And they would say, God, truth, right and wrong. And you think that's really not the way things are? I'm telling you, it is. I just had a guy come and deliver a washing machine to my house the other day. And I asked him, I said, do you have a Christian background? Well, his answer wasn't that he did. He said, well, my parents go to Southeast Christian. And I said, well, do you go there? He said, no, I don't go there anymore. So I tried to share, without getting into that all, tried to share my testimony with him about how messed up I was as a teenager. And I started seeking for truth and all that. And he listened, and he was nice about it. And his answer to me was, and I think he meant this. He says, well, I'm glad that worked for you. People that are messed up like you need help. <laughs> well, listen, what he was telling me was, I'm glad it worked for you. If it worked for you, that's good for you. But it's not for me. I don't need it. I've been around all that. I tried it, and it didn't work. So I tried to explain to him, look, there are many paths, but there is only one right path. But he'd heard it all before. He was inoculated, if you want to put it that way. And that's the way a lot of people are. So listen, it's not an intellectual reason. Truth, you would think that's an intellectual thing, truth. But it's not an intellectual reason that the world rejects moral absolutes and the Bible and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a moral reason. They hate truth. Why? Because it makes demands. It calls for a person to submit. And man, without the aid and the grace of God, is a rebel without a cause or hope. So, if you would turn with me to John 3, beginning in verse 16, it says this, For God... We all know this verse, so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He that believes on him is not condemned, but he that believes not is condemned already. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten son of God. And this is the condemnation. That light has come into the world and men loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that does evil hates the light. Neither comes to the light lest his deeds should be reproved. Verse 21, but he that does truth comes to the light that his deeds may be evident or seen that they are wrought in God. So sinners go to hell, not because God is intolerant or unfair, but because they love darkness. That's why they go to hell. And they don't love the truth. They hate the truth or the light. They absolutely hate it. And Satan has them blinded. And they're becoming more and more blinded today. We need to be aware of that. And so we don't fall into that cesspool with them. And that's why we're talking about putting on the belt of truth. Because they don't see the light as being glorious. They see the light as being bondage. In 2 Corinthians, Paul says, come to the glorious light to see the face of the Lord Jesus Christ. They don't see it that way. They see that light as nothing but bondage to them. And verse 21, I think it's interesting that he says that those that do truth, that hear it, that understand, embrace it, and live it, these are the ones who come to the light. They love the light. They love truth. And these are the people that have girded their waist with truth. 
They're coming to the light, not avoiding it. They've embraced the words of the Lord Jesus Christ as absolute truth. Truth, we just read in verse 21, that is to be obeyed in the sight of God. That God, it could be seen, these words were wrought in God. And so listen, doing this truth is what is going to enable us in these last days to stand. And let me ask you, it goes without saying, do you not want to stand in these last days? Is your prayer not, God, allow me to be one of the few that makes it to the end? Because it still is going to be just a few. It's always the few from Genesis to Revelation. Then listen, then you and I need to be the verse 21 people, people that are doing the truth, coming to the light and doing the truth and having our loins girt with truth. And I'll tell you, because that is the only way anyone is going to stand in these last days. Believe me. And you don't have to believe me. Believe Paul. Turn to 2 Thessalonians. I'm saying loving and doing truth is our only safeguard. 2 Thessalonians, beginning in verse 8. It says, Then shall that wicked be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the spirit of his mouth, and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming, even him whose coming is after the working of Satan, with all power and signs and lying wonders, in verse 10, and with all deceivableness of unrighteousness in them that perish. And why did they perish? What does he say? Because they received not what? The love of the truth. They didn't want that around their waist. They didn't love truth. Why? That they might be saved. And for this cause. What cause? That they didn't love truth. That's the cause. And for this cause, what does it say happens? God himself shall send them what? Strong delusion. That they might believe a lie. God would do that? <laughs> we read Romans 1, didn't we? They're doing it to themselves. Verse 12, that they all might be damned who what? Who believe not the truth. But instead of believing the truth, it says they had pleasure in unrighteousness. So listen, I'm saying, reading the left behind books is not going to have you ready for the end times. That's right. I'm telling you. Studying end times, having teaching on end times, is not going to have you ready for the end times. And people think it will. Oh, if we just study prophecy more, we just had a little deeper understanding. If you would just please take time to go through the book of Revelation, that would be very helpful. Well, I'm not saying that it wouldn't be helpful and that it shouldn't be done. But that is not your guarantee. You're not going to be deceived. The only guarantee you have is what we're talking about today. Putting on that belt of truth Amen. and loving truth, believing truth, and walking in truth. That's your only guarantee. I'd make that my first priority. Amen. Put all your books about end time events on the shelf if you're not walking in truth. They're not going to do you any good because they aren't going to protect you from a strong delusion if you're not walking right with the Lord. <laughs> Hear what I'm saying, right? So that's how you're going to stand in that evil day. That's what he's saying there. Because those that don't approve or love the truth, but have pleasure in sin, they will not be able to withstand the spirit of the Antichrist. Isn't that what Jesus said? Unless those days were shortened, even the elect would fall into the deception. All of this earth is going to be taking that mark because they're believing a lie. And they'll be deluded. God himself will send that strong delusion. I think that is sobering. It really is. And so Proverbs 23, 23 tells us this. Buy the truth and sell it not. Also wisdom, instruction, and understanding. Buy the truth. How do you buy the truth? <laughs> By 
by loving it and living it. Amen. It becomes part of it. That's how you buy it. And truth, I'm telling you right now, is at a premium. There is a famine coming over this land. It's a stock that you don't want to sell. It's got eternal value. It never loses its value. And why is truth so valuable? Because God himself had to come to this earth as a man to give it to us. So our culture says that we can't know the truth. That truth is subjective. But the Bible tells us there is a truth that is outside of us. It's objective. It's external. It's absolute. And it's an absolute truth that gives meaning to this world. And it's not truth. The world, they say, we create our own truth. The truth of God is not a truth we create in our mind. But it's a truth that we discover as God graciously reveals it to us. He has to reveal it to us. And that truth is the same for you and for me. And it's come from outside this world and has been revealed to this world. And truth is named the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you could turn to one last verse. John 18, verses 37 and 38. Jesus is having a little discussion with Pilate before his crucifixion. And Pilate, verse 37, therefore said unto him, Are you a king then? And Jesus said, You say it, that I am a king. And look what he says here. To this end was I born, and for this cause came I into the world, that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone that is of the truth hears my voice. He told Pilate, this is the reason I was born, not to celebrate Christmas. That's what the world does. But his purpose was to come into this world and to bear witness to the truth, to reveal, testify what the truth is to the world and to us. And he says to those who would listen, those who are of the truth, they are the ones that will hear his voice and they are the ones that will be set free from the powers of darkness, from the power of the enemy. That's what he came to do. For this purpose was the Son of God manifest to destroy the works of the evil one. But Pilate's answer is what the answer of the world is today. What do they say? What is truth? It's standing right in front of them. Right in front of Pilate. Right in front of the world. What is truth? There's no way of knowing that. Pilate's looking at it. How can you say that? See, look at all the gods. Millions worship, they can't all be wrong. And he would have fit in well in America, wouldn't he? What is truth? It's what works for you. And I want to finish by addressing the young people. The young people. So they've done studies. And the fact of the matter is that most people, so if somebody's 80 and you're believing for them, I'm not talking about that. But most people that come to the Lord come to the Lord between the ages of 15 and 25. And as you get, when your age groups get less and less and less of an age group will come to salvation. So it's not impossible. And why? Because people harden their hearts. They suppress the truth more and more as they grow older and older and get hardened. It's a judicial hardening. And so God reaches some of them. But the bulk of the people are between the ages of 15 and 25. And why is that? Because that is a time when young people are trying to figure out what life is all about. They're breaking away from total parental control and they're beginning to think for themselves. I mean, think about yourself. That's the way I was. Around 14, 15, 16, I'm starting to think for myself. Thinking about this church my parents go to. Why do, what, what am I going to do with my life? What's life all about? Why am I here? What's the purpose of all of this? That's what people start thinking at that age. Why do I have to believe? Well, I'm here at this church. I'm looking at this Catholic church. I think there's a lot of other churches out there and people that say they worship God. And here's what I would say to young people in this room right now. My advice to you is at least give respect to what the Lord Jesus said here in John. Because if a man said that God 
sent him into this world to bear witness to the truth, I would at least listen to what he has to say. Because Jesus just got through saying, if anyone will listen to his voice, listen to his teachings, listen to how he dealt with people in compassion, but also sometimes he was stern with them. He said, if you're one of the truth, if you're sincerely seeking truth, he's saying, you'll know I am God, sent from God, God in the flesh, and that I spoke the words of God. And so how do you do that? Because Jesus is no longer here in the flesh, is he? How do you hear his voice? You know what's in, in this book? Four Gospels. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They record the words of Jesus, the life of Jesus, the sayings of Jesus. And he said, Solomon, they came from all the ends of the earth to hear his wisdom. And he says, a greater than Solomon is here. That's what he said. And I would venture to say that maybe there's some, but a lot of young people in this room right now have never seriously read the four Gospels. Maybe there's some adults that never have seriously read the Gospels. Jesus' testimony to truth. And I would challenge you, if you're searching at that age, when I would go out witnessing on the streets, the people I loved to talk to were the teenagers. And they would tell me, I'm thinking, I'm searching. Had that happen so many times. I've been reading my Bible. I'm trying to figure this out. And I'd say, do that. But do, start reading the Gospels. Give it a fair hearing. And then you'll come away. I could almost guarantee it if you do it with an honest and sincere heart. You'll come away with what the soldiers said. What soldiers are you talking about? This is the last place. Just turn back a few chapters to John 7. I could have quoted this, but I thought, let's read it. Because it's an interesting story. John 7, beginning in verse 45. It says, then came the officers to the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto them, why haven't you brought him? And the officers answered, look what they said. Never a man spake like this man. Never anyone as I've ever heard spake like this man. And then answered the Pharisees, are you also deceived? <laughs> they got it backwards. Have any of the rulers or of the Pharisees believed on him? But this people who knows not the law are cursed and whole. Tell you what, Nicodemus may have came by night, but he had a little bit of backbone to him because it said, he said unto them, he that came to Jesus by night being one of them, does not our law judge any man? And hear what I would say. Do you judge Jesus or Christianity before it hear him and knows what he does? And they answered and said unto him, are you also of Galilee? Search and look, for out of Galilee arises no prophet. So look, there was something about the words of Jesus. I mean, I could just speak for myself. As a young man, I'm into Chinese meditation. I was sincerely searching for truth. God, who are you? And when I took this Bible and started reading the Gospels for myself, I couldn't get away from that. No man spake like these men. In my heart, I'm saying... The words of Jesus, that's the word of God. That's just not the word of some ordinary person. This is no ordinary book. The other books I read, they were more than ordinary. Did nothing but get me in trouble spiritually. So there was this French scholar, Dr. E.V. I'm not going to say it is French, Ryu. He was assigned, he was an unregenerate. He was assigned to translate both the ancient poet Homer and the four Gospels into English. This scholar, he's an unbeliever. He's assigned to translate the four Gospels into English. Not a committed Christian. But listen to this. After he translated, had to spend time with those words, had to spend time hearing what Jesus said, what he taught, what he did, the account that was given of him, this breathed out word from God written by these men about Jesus. After he did that, here's what he said. He said, I got the deepest feeling that I possibly could have expected. He said, it changed me. My work changed me. 
He said, I came to the conclusion that these words bear the seal of the Son of Man and God. He said, they're the Magna Carta of the human spirit. Was converted, and I could have given you other stories, but it's time to close. But I would say this to everyone in this room. We're talking about the belt of truth, the authority of the Word of God. Have you accepted that this is the authoritative Word of God? Truth, not relative, absolute truth that must be obeyed of the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you put on your belt of truth, girded your waist, not just with knowledge, but with a love of that truth that'll transform you, it'll change you, it'll sanctify you, and it will protect you from the evil one in these last days, from those deluding, deceiving spirits that are causing multitudes to turn their back on Christianity or to call themselves even worse, to call themselves Christian and no longer living by the standards of the word. So it's our only hope and it's the armor that we need to put on first to keep us from a spirit of error, the belt of the spirit of truth. Amen. <laughs> Let's pray. Father, once again, Lord, we just bow our hearts before you and we just thank you, Father, for that you came to this earth, took on flesh to reveal truth to us so that we could be saved and have a knowledge of how to escape the powers of darkness and how to be delivered from our sin and how to come into your kingdom. We just thank you so much, Lord, for this revelation that you've given us. And I ask, Father, that for all of us here, that you'll give us a love for your truth, a love to live the truth of the word that you've given us to your glory. And I just pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.